This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. So coming up next, we have uh, Vivian and Kimberly from Deloitte Digital who will be talking about uh, conducting research with um, sort of uh, specialised uh, or narrow um, groups and, and getting a, a broad and diverse perspective um, into your research. Kimberly and Vivian, welcome. I will leave you to it. Thank you both for joining. No worries at all. Uh, so hi everyone, we're so excited to be presenting today on embracing diversity in research. This topic is so important to both of us um, because after years of researching with so many different types of user groups, we've evolved as designers and we've realised the true importance of inclusion and diversity as part of the user experience. And we love that we get the opportunity to share some of our insights with you all today. So just a quick intro of who we are before we get started. So my name's Viv, I'm a senior UX designer at Deloitte Digital. I've researched and tested both graphical user interfaces and voice user interfaces in several industries, including telecom, superannuation and government. And as a designer, my passion lies in customer research and accessible design. I'm also a four foot five in height and came third on the Amazing Race Australia in 2019. And I'm Kim and I work alongside Viv as a UX designer at Deloitte Digital. Since March 2020, during Melbourne's lockdown, I spent over 4,000 minutes speaking to over 70 customers virtually and have experience moderating and leading user testing sessions with customers and enterprise consumers across a range of industries, including telecommunications, printing, and government. Um, fun fact about myself, I've climbed to the top of Mount Fuji in Japan and have completed three full marathons. So let's get started. So the COVID-19 pandemic has led to an inevitable surge in the use of digital technologies. And as we've all seen, the adoption of digital channels has happened much quicker than we predicted. Businesses have been forced to quickly respond and adapt to the changing environment in order to keep up with consumer demand. The need for a strong online presence and digital accessibility for all has never been more important. Now, what am I referring to when I say digital accessibility? Digital accessibility is the ability of a website, mobile app or electronic document to be easily navigated and understood by a wide range of users, including those who have visual, auditory, motor or cognitive disabilities. One in six Australians have a disability. That equates to 4.4 million people. Each one of these individuals have different types and severities of disability, come from all demographic and socioeconomic groups and have varying needs for assistance. Digital accessibility not only benefits people with disabilities, but it also benefits people without them, such as changing abilities due to illness or ageing, people who have slow internet connections, people with temporary disabilities such as a broken arm, and people using devices with a small screen. The list goes on. As you can see, accessibility is for everyone and we all benefit from clear, logical and user-friendly experiences. To put it simply, accessibility is usability that's more inclusive. Everyone has a right to access information online, regardless of their access needs. So two years ago, I researched and conducted interviews with nine low vision and blind users. Um, a person said to have low vision when they have permanent vision loss that cannot be corrected with glasses and affects their daily functioning. The purpose of this research piece was to essentially understand how blind and low vision users currently browse for movies and TV shows through subscription services such as Netflix, Stan and Amazon Prime, and to get their view on how they would like to access any available audio description service. 
If you're not familiar with audio description, it's essentially a track of narration which describes important visual elements of a TV show, movie or performance included between lines of dialogue for the benefit of blind and visually uh, impaired consumers. While it's recognised as an essential feature to make visual media accessible to audiences who are blind or visually impaired, it's increasingly becoming recognised as benefiting other disability groups as well as the mainstream audience. For instance, you could listen to a movie with audio description turned on and use them as an audiobook while driving or cooking. While audio description services aren't offered on free-to-air television in Australia, unlike many other English-speaking countries, it is available via some subscription services such as Netflix and some streaming and pay television providers. So before interviewing these users, I wrote down various assumptions that I wanted to validate. One of my assumptions was, as the level of visual impairment increased, the desire for a graphical user interface experience decreased with a voice user interface being favoured. One of the key takeaways I learned was that all users wanted an inclusive experience, not an exclusive one. The level of impairment did not conclusively determine whether the user would prefer to interact with a visual interface, a voice interface, or both. These users didn't want a separate audio description service or experience. They wanted a consistent experience, whether you were visually impaired or not, and some even suggested that having a graphical user interface gave them more confidence and sense of control than having a voice user face only. So here are some of the many quotes I captured. Not everyone in the household or every household has vision impairment. If someone is using it, they can see, they can still use it. Honestly, I don't want it to go too far the other way. Having accessibility is fantastic, but you don't want it to make it inaccessible to other people. You're segregating people who are vision impaired to everyone else. No visual thing on the screen excludes other members of my family and puts me in the reverse position. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that. Another assumption I made was that as the level of impairment increased, users would find using a voice interface only based solution quicker than a graphical user interface. This was inconclusive. So regardless of the level of impairment, users wanted the ability to access audio described content in the fastest and easiest way possible, whether that was with a voice assistant through a graphical interface or through a combination of both. There was no clear preference, even for those who were legally blind at birth or at a very young age. For some, the idea of a voice interface would cause more frustrations than swiping through a graphical interface. For others, however, using voice as the initial point of entry sounded great, with the ability to then swipe through the titles using the graphical interface and screen reader. So a few quotes I captured on this was, if I could ask my phone, show me action movies that are audio described, this would certainly be quicker than going through a whole lot of search filters. I'd then be quite happy for it to show me the list on the screen so I can pick what I wanted. If using voice control took longer than a screen reader, uh, sorry, than using a screen, then it would irritate me. For me, it's about time and usability. If I can do it quicker myself, I'd much rather do that. If the voice interface was well done and well put together, then it'd be really cool. I personally prefer to make the choice myself. And finally, I'd use it some days, depending on what I'm doing. I want a personal preference. Not everyone's going to want voice only. Interestingly, most of these users also consumed non-audio described content due to various reasons, but largely due to the lack of availability of audio described content in Australia as a whole. 
And one participant even said that some genres, such as comedy, don't require visual elements to it. In conducting this research, I also learned how to use a screen reader on my iPhone and was really shocked to find how many apps had poor screen reader accessibility. For those of you who are unfamiliar with screen readers, it's essentially a form of assistive technology that renders text and image content as speech. In simple terms, the screen reader will read the content of a page to the user. Using the screen reader on my phone alone made me realise how important accessibility really was. I can only imagine the frustration from those who have to rely on screen readers day to day. Through a quick test of various apps and websites on my phone, I encountered so many problems and many apps were quite inaccessible. So I'd just like to take a moment to show a demo of two different media apps. Start Sunday. Watch now. Movie. New on 7 Plus. On now. Live. Progress. 7 News. 6.007 p.m. Trending on 7. TXII, resident, resident. Vertical scroll bar, the page three of 13, 25%. Vertical scroll bar, 13 pages, 25%. Adjustable, page four of 13. Now, not to name and shame Channel 7, but as you can see in the demo, what we usually consider a simple UX failed to meet accessibility requirements. The app failed to use alternative text on images and other non-text content. The user was read out labels such as watch now, but as a blind and low vision user, you can't actually see the image that goes along with it. Sometimes it didn't read anything out at all, and sometimes it said the show name twice. The accessible solution would have been to have alternative text that read, Junior Holy Moly, watch now, button. In this instance, the button now has context and it's clear that you are on a button and where you will go if you click the button. It's also important to consider the amount of content presented on a page and how much you want your users to be scrolling and what happens when they scroll. Rather than simply read out page three of 13, the app read, Page 3 of 13, 25% vertical scroll bar, 13 pages, 25% adjustable. It isn't necessary for the user to find out how far along the scroll bar they are, nor was it necessary to repeat the number of pages. They have enough context being told what page they're on and how many pages, i.e. scrolls, there is to go. Here's an example of improved accessibility through the Netflix app. TV shows, button. Movies, button. Selected, categories, button. Jurassic Park 3, image. Tags, exciting, sci-fi adventure, sci-fi movie. My lip, info, play, my list. Jurassic Park 3, button. In this example, you can already see the improved accessibility with the app telling you what element type you're on. For example, movies, button, or Jurassic Park 3, image. However, the play button still provides no context for the user that they would be clicking the button to watch Jurassic Park. You have to navigate through the tags, my list and the information button before even reaching the play button. 
This is why it's so important to consider accessibility upfront and not as an afterthought through research and design. It shouldn't, also, it shouldn't just be left to your front-end developers to implement accessibility such as alternative text either. It should already be considered and documented as part of the design itself before development even begins. WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, defines how to make web content more accessible to people with disabilities. To meet the WCAG 2.0 level AA standard, the website is usable and understandable for the majority of people with or without disabilities. By law, all Victorian government online services must comply with the WCAG 2.0 level AA accessibility standards. There's no legal requirement for other industries, however, to comply with this. Some notable level AA requirements include colour contrast, alternative text or a similar solution for images that convey meaning, navigation elements that are consistent through the site, form fields that have accurate labels, and headings that are used in a logical order. Your site may not be WCAG 2.0 AA compliant yet, but a few simple updates can help you get there, and there are WCAG checklists available online to assist you. So why don't we actually consider accessibility more? Now, there are various reasons. Firstly, there's a big lack of accountability for inaccessible products. People don't care about accessibility unless it's specifically their job to do so or it affects them personally. We also assume that there are no users with accessibility needs in our target audience. But as mentioned previously, one in six Australians have a disability, so it's actually a lot more common than we think. Sometimes our clients also want to go outside of the box with a website and make it more trendy with gimmicks or animation. While there is value in aesthetics and eye-catching design, accessibility and style aren't always mutually exclusive. I'm sure all of us at one time or another have experienced a really nice looking website that simply didn't work as intended. It makes it even more difficult for some individuals with a disability, such as ADHD, uh, as they may have trouble determining which information on the page is important and may lose focus when there are too many distractions on the page. We need to ensure that we are properly testing the usability for all users. So what are some tips when planning research for people with disabilities? My very first tip is to just treat them as you would treat anyone else. No one likes to be singled out or treated differently and respect goes a long way. Accommodate, accommodate for their differences through choosing accessible venues or through facilitating alternative forms of communication that may be required. All of my interviews were conducted over the phone as it was a lot easier for my participants to attend the sessions this way. Conducting interviews over the phone also meant that I needed to pick research methods that catered to this. Rather than showing them a visual like I would normally do in user testing, I would instead describe to them the concept and ask them to rate it between one to five, one being highly dissatisfied and five being highly satisfied. For example, you've accessed the app and it detects that you are using a screen reader. An audio description category button automatically appears. How would you rate this and why? Research should also be representative of all people, regardless of disability and other aspects of human diversity. They should be equally eligible to participate as research subjects. This means taking steps where possible to facilitate such participation. 
A simple way would be preparing larger print materials for, for participants with visual impairments or providing facilities for hearing impaired users such as signage. My final tip is to just be aware of varying degrees of sensitivity and to express kindness. This point in particular should be applied to anyone you're researching or testing with. However, in my research with blind and low vision users, I found each user had a varying degree of sensitivity in regards to their disability. For instance, those who are blind at birth were very comfortable talking about their disability as it's basically what they've always known. On the other hand, users who were born with full vision and began to lose their vision in adulthood, some even within the last few years, understandably found it a lot more difficult to talk about. Simply be kind, understanding and sensitive towards your users and talk to them as you would with anyone else who was going through a difficult time. I'll now pass it to Kim to talk about recruiting for diversity. Thanks Viv. It's great to hear about your experiences doing research with low vision and blind users. So next, I'll be talking about recruiting for diversity and what actions we can take together to ensure we can recruit for diverse user groups when conducting research in our projects. I'll also be sharing some of my experiences working with different diverse user groups. So to get started, I'd like to share how I currently recruit for users during customer testing and the types of demographics that I consider when making these decisions. As someone who's been involved with many government initiatives, we often have to create designs that are inclusive for all types of people who live in the state and the country. I usually select participants who vary in age range, gender, level of tech savviness, just to really ensure our designs work for those who are great at using online platforms, but also for those who aren't familiar with technology. I also try to recruit half of my customers as English as a second language user to ensure the content and the messaging across our designs are simple and could be understood by many different types of people from different cultures. Consider the user's level of experience of certain activities as well. For example, if you're designing a new app that matches dogs with potential dog walkers, you really want to recruit participants who have a lot of experience with dog walking, but also want to think about people who don't have a lot of experience with dog walking, but are interested in getting involved to potentially make some money as their side hustle. From recruiting those of various experience levels, you'll get to learn a lot about really deep insights across the board and learn a lot about your customers. And depending on the initiative I am currently designing for, I usually also consider different factors such as selecting my participants ranging in the level of income, their occupation, and the preferred device preference, such as wanting to use the online platform from their mobile phone, their iPad, or their desktop computer. On your right, you will see a little snippet of what it looks like when I recruit users on Askable, so the user testing platform. It has a lot of great filter functionalities that I really enjoy um, to make recruitment much easier for myself. So some of the questions you want to ask yourself when recruiting. When preparing for recruitment, there are a few questions that you can think about um, in, prepare, in preparing for this. So firstly, how many users are you recruiting for? Are you planning to recruit for multiple rounds of testing? Are you able to recruit enough users to provide enough customer feedback on your designs? I usually recruit for around five to six participants per round, depending on the initiative I tried to have an even amount of diverse user groups per round. What percentage will be different from different from diverse user groups? So I think about if I'm trying to recruit on a person's, it'll be around, so for my example, 
Um, I usually try to recruit a 50-50 split that's male and female. And are you planning to recruit for more from a specific type of user group or are you thinking about different ones as well? Take note of the types of people you're trying to recruit for and how this will impact your project. What types of customer screening questions can you create to find different diverse user groups? If I'm trying to recruit on a person's level of tech savviness, I usually ask, what is your level of tech expertise? And then provide various responses such as beginner, average, or advanced. And then from that, I would filter out some of the questions and the options to understand who would be a good fit for a project and how many people I would like from that particular group. Another question to think about would be, what types of personas are you recruiting for? For one initiative, I had to create a new online learner permit experience. And although it was known that many people who were turning 16 would sign up for their L's, there are also people who we have to cater for and other personas as well, such as people who might not have their L's up until they're 25 or people who are coming from overseas who want to convert their license. There's a lot of different types of scenarios, situations, and various types of users that could fit into this category. So we had to think about all the different types of scenarios and who we'd like to recruit for um, to cater for those personas. And finally, how does your specific industry impact how you recruit users? So sometimes the projects you work on require you to recruit for very specific types of users that come from niche markets. For example, if you're building a new digital agriculture platform that's made specifically for farmers, you probably want to get farmers to test out your product. When I worked on a new electrical vehicle experience, I was trying to recruit half females and half males, but I ended up discovering that our ideal customer were 50-year-old males with higher levels of income. So, And then those type of personas, they were highly interested in investing in um, electric vehicles and are really doing their research on that. So even though it was great to have a specific criteria for who you would like to recruit for, um, each project is a little bit different. So it's okay to change the percentage of how many people you like to recruit for from various user groups. Now I'll dive a little bit deeper into my experiences researching with youth. As mentioned earlier, a project I worked on was designing a new experience to apply for your learner permit. My task was to recruit for 14 to 16 participants to test out the new platform and understand whether these designs um, would work for them. So for recruiting young participants, um, it was a challenge for us because the current platform we we're using, which was Askel, only allowed 18 year olds or older to sign up and participate in the sessions. So we ended up asking some of the Askel team members to see what could be done in this situation. And they mentioned they worked closely with educational clients before and already had that experience into recruiting for youth. So that was really good news for us. They told us, hey, you can recruit parents and guardians on behalf of your children, on behalf of their children, and ask for the consent um, so they could just supervise the session and be able to participate in your sessions as well. So that's what we ended up doing. So before trying to recruit for youth, make sure you're considering different types of channels you're recruiting for, for young users, in addition to Askable, we thought about different types of platforms, um, such as Facebook communities and different channels, email lists that we had with um, high schoolers that going out to teach workshops to. So we had a lot of different groups that we potentially could reach out to. 
but we ended up using the online platform um, to be able to do this. So make sure to speak with your client or who you're working with to see if there are already groups of people who you want to reach out to. And because this may be a new experience for you, make sure to give yourself enough time to recruit for these users. When you can't recruit for teenagers directly, recruit for parents and guardians on behalf of your users. Ensure your customer screening questions are clear. So I've experienced a lot of confused and inaccurate responses from not providing clear questions. So for the first round of testing, um, one of the questions I asked was, do you have your license? And added small description text at the bottom to say, hey, make sure to ask or answer this on behalf of your child. But a lot of parents, guardians read this quickly and they did not read the little help text at the bottom. So they ended up answering the question on behalf of themselves and said, yes, I do have a license. Um, that is not what I wanted from these. So second round of testing, I made sure to make it really clear to the customer, whoever is filling up the survey, to change the question. So I wrote, does your child have their license? Which provided us with more accurate responses to the surveys, because there's no confusion on that. You didn't need any help text underneath it. You also want to provide flexible time slots for your participants. So you also have to think about the availability of your users. And during COVID-19, we're able to catch some students who were studying at home, but also there are some people um, within school as well. So from that, we just had to be really flexible on our time slots and make sure we are catering for everyone. So we provided time slots from 8 a.m., 5 p.m., 6 p.m., just to ensure they can attend. We want to make it clear you want the child to participate. Parents sometimes get excited to get involved, so they chime in and during the testing sessions. And when this is happening, um, make sure to remind them that we like to hear from their child and not from the parent. Make sure to be very polite and nice when you say that, because I did have some parents and guardians like really active and involved into it. Um, and I just had to make sure to be friendly and let them uh, not <laughs> talk in the sessions. And of course, not every user testing is perfect. So you might have some no-shows and you wanna make sure you recruit for backup participants and have some candidates on the wait list in case someone does not show up. So one time I had a parent come to the session um, without their child and I asked them where their child was at that time. Um, they told me their child was at school and I kind of wish they told me in advance because it was very specific that I wanted both them and their child to sit in the session, but I couldn't kind of cancel at that time. So we ended up moving forward with that participant because um, they were already set up and we were ready for that. Uh, we ended up getting a lot of good feedback from them. So even though I kind of told them, hey, think as if you were your child. Um, yeah, we still got a few decent notes from that. So you never know what's going to come during user testing. Something else to really consider when working with youth, um, create a warm and welcoming environment. So when conducting customer testing sessions, you want to ensure they're comfortable um, and they're happy to just help out during the session. One time I had to complete a customer testing session with a really shy and timid teenager. Um, his older brother was there to supervise him and did a really good job not having to prompt him and ask him and help him along the way. But whenever they felt, so whenever the younger brother felt he was going to say something wrong, he immediately looked at his brother and tried to get him to share the answer with him. 
Um, I kept reminding him that there are no right or wrong answers and tried to create a friendly and warm environment. I told him that we were designing the experience for him and really valued his opinion. In a different session, I did meet someone who is extremely vocal and confident in their abilities to share their design feedback. So kind of complete opposite as well. Um, they amazed me with some of their answers and even I even jokingly offered them a job working with me on my design team because they were pointing out details that weren't even mentioned by anyone else, such as how to change button colors or how the content hierarchy sits on the email. I could definitely see a future for this person. So it was really fun to work with them and see how their design experience kind of works into play. Overall, some teams may be confident and outspoken while others may be reserved and shy. So we just want to make sure to let them know their feedback is very valued and reassure them there is no right or wrong answers along the way. You also want to make it fun for them. So if you want to make your customer sessions more engaging, add emojis and funny messages throughout your prototype in between different activities. So these are just a few screens from the prototype I used to test it with teenagers. I wrote things like, wow, you're on fire and nice. You deserve a snack for making it this far. The little watermelon emoji. Since we were all working from home during this time through the pandemic, I decided to keep myself entertained when setting up these sessions, but also wanted to provide a fun experience for whoever I was testing the product with. Now I'll get into my experiences with working with non-tech savvy users and a few of my greatest tips with working with these user groups. So a few key considerations when working with these user groups. Um, first, make sure to ask the user if they have any experience using your user testing platform of choice, whether it be Zoom or Teams or anything else. I once spent a solid 15 minutes instructing the user how to share their screen with me and how to find the group chat icon on Zoom so they could click on my prototype. Um, it's always best to have a backup plan if something like that happens, such as getting ready to email your prototype to the participant in case they aren't able to click on it or receive it, or even taking the time to include the prototype link in the invite ahead of time. If they don't have experience with your particular platform of choice, provide clear instructions on how to use that technology and the different functions that you'll be using, such as screen sharing or group chats. If possible, log into the call earlier to see if your customer needs any assistance with the technology setup. If you're using a testing platform like Askable, it actually tells you whether or not your customer has completed their tech setup. To avoid any tech issues, it's best to recruit customers who already have completed their tech setup prior to the customer testing session. As you know, they'll have reliable internet connection and a camera and mic that's already set up. Also, do not assume that older participants are non-tech savvy. So I've met amazing people who have worked in digital and sales they're familiar with a lot of different types of tools. It's always great to recruit for a range of ages when testing with different customers, but this is just something to note in case you think they might not be tech savvy. Consider offline or alternative solutions. So sometimes a user may prefer completing digital activities um, in other channels, such as speaking to a customer or a staff member at a customer service center. When you discover these insights, you'll be thinking, how does the current designs cater for these people? Is there enough content on the website, emails, and other online channels 
to let them know how to complete these activities? Do your designs make sense to direct people to the preferred pathway? Make sure to consider designing for all the alternative and offline solutions if you haven't already done so. I'll be sharing my experiences doing research with English as a second language users now. So many people try to stray away from testing with people who may not be fluent in English, as they may have difficulty communicating their questions clearly and documenting the responses that they want from these testing sessions. However, it is super important to ensure that you're testing your designs with people who speak English as their second language, as we currently live in a world full of many different cultures and diverse communities. While English is the dominant language in Australia, many people speak different languages within their families and communities. So from a 2016 census, collectively, Australians speak over 200 different languages and about 21% of Australians reported speaking a language other than English at home. Most common languages include Mandarin, Arabic, Cantonese, Vietnamese, Italian, and Greek. As someone who has two immigrant parents, I really understand the difficulty they face when trying to complete activities independently themselves. Sometimes they're faced with having to understand complicated words or jargon or having to complete an online form that is not as intuitive as it could be. By testing out your products and designs with these diverse user groups, you'll discover valuable insights that can make your designs much more simpler and easier to use, creating a great customer experience for all. When preparing and conducting research with English as a second language users, there are a few different things that you need to do. Firstly, make sure to create any assumptions and hypotheses ahead of time so you're aware of how users will perceive your designs. Think about all the different types of potential drop-off points that may be difficult for the users. Secondly, review your entire design end-to-end -end, and spot off all the areas that contain jargon or technical languages. Consider updating any of the jargon in your designs if possible. So sometimes you aren't able to change terms due to policy and legal regulations, but it is good to take note of some of these words that, you can, that may cause difficulty for someone to understand. Then if you discover from testing these words might not make sense, then you can document the feedback and provide recommendations to change the words to your project team. When developing your moderation guide, Make sure your questions are clear and make sense. Keep the language simple and easy to understand. When speaking to your participants, make sure to speak slowly and enunciate. Customers may need time to understand some of the questions, so make sure to adapt to the situation and be patient with them. I'm guessing we're almost out of time since Steve popped up. <laughs> so um, I once conducted a testing session with someone from South America, and I wasn't able to understand some of the questions clearly, so I had to think on my feet and change some of the words and questions on that to ensure they understood what we were asking from them. Whether speaking with teenagers, non-tech savvy users, or English as a second language user, there'll always be surprises in your sessions and new trinkets of knowledge to learn. That's probably why I love conducting customer testing sessions with so many people. Um, I love meeting new people and interesting people along the way. There's always something to learn in those sessions. So why do you ask, should you recruit for and consider diverse user groups as part of your research, design and testing? 
How can you even convince your leadership team and clients who have their own pressures, tight deadlines and limited budgets? Firstly, it makes us better designers by default. As designers, we should be recognising and considering all types of users and too easily we forget people that have accessibility requirements or don't speak English as a first language or who are non-tech savvy. We strongly encourage you to spend just 10 to 15 minutes learning how to use a screen reader on your mobile phone and this alone will give you a really good start on the simple ways you can consider and implement accessibility into your designs. This is just one small thing you can do to take the steps towards more inclusive design. While it can feel daunting and unfamiliar at first, as with anything we do, we research, we learn and we adapt. There are also plenty of articles, resources and accessibility checklists out there for designers that are just one Google search away. By diversifying and increasing your user reach, you will also in turn drive more traffic. I think this one's pretty self-explanatory. The better the experience for an individual, the more likely that they are to come back and recommend it to their family and friends. Inclusive design can also lead to having a point of difference over fellow competitors. Be recognised as a champion and advocate of inclusive design in your industry. You can also reduce additional development costs and rework costs required to retroactively apply uh, fixes. Just imagine if Channel 7 had considered accessibility upfront when building the app in the first place. You can also reduce potential legal risks and lower operational costs of handling complaints. So all in all, diversity brings value, and we really hope through our presentation that you've been encouraged to look at UX and research with just a little bit of a different lens than you had before attending. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll just spend the next few minutes taking any questions you had for us. Thank you both. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Um, we, we do have time for a, a question or two um, before the next uh, presentation. Um, while we're waiting to see if someone uh, posts one in the Q and A, I'm I'm curious, how do we how do we change our design teams so that they're more diverse in the same sorts of ways that we change our research participants? So rather than rather than it just being a research activity, can we do the same thing with our design teams and with our research teams? That's a good question. I think um, it's always, of course, good to have diversity within your research team. I think a big point for me is not just diversifying your team based on trying to meet certain statistics. So while it's great to have, you know, a split between male and female, it really comes down to experience, um, you know, what roles they've had and what different industries. A lot of our designers, our design team, we're quite diverse. Some of us are UX UI designers, some of us are UX BAs, some of us are UX researchers. Um, so just having diversity there um, and some of our, you know, UX designs have experience in front-end development. So it's more having diversity in terms of experience um, and what they can bring um, at a skill level rather than having, you know, diversity in terms of, I guess, ethnicity and mm. genders, et cetera. That's wonderful. Thank you both so much for that talk. No worries at all. Thanks Thank for you. the opportunity.